Okay, so Romans 9. Um, A quick recap in uh, two minutes of the last however long it has been that we've been going through Romans, like years and years. Uh, There are basically three movements that we've seen so far. Uh, The Apostle Paul, writing to the Roman church, tells them that he's going to set out the good news of the gospel, the good news of God's faithfulness. Uh, But then in the first movement of the letter, he takes a surprising turn because what he actually emphasises is the problem that all of humanity is in. In chapters 1 to 3 of the book, he labours the fact that God's wrath is being shown against all humanity. And that is because all humanity is sinful. Everyone has rebelled against God primarily by ignoring him or in fact by deliberately forgetting him, substituting other objects of worship for the true and living God. And so everybody finds themselves subject to God's judgment and condemnation. That's the first movement. Second movement, which is introduced at chapter 3, verse 21, is that God, nevertheless, and despite all of this, shows his righteousness by sending his son Jesus, who dies for us and rises again, and as a result, gives grace to all who trust him, so that they can be counted as righteous, as right, as clean, as in good standing with God. And that is the second movement right through to the end of chapter 5. And then the third movement that we've been seeing more recently is that through the Holy Spirit, Jesus gives us new life. So we are counted righteous in God's sight, but we also begin to behave in ways that more and more conform and show that righteousness. So the Spirit works in us, and that actually leads to internal conflict because there is that in us that still loves our old sinful way. But the Spirit leads us into combat with that sinful nature and assures us that we will have victory at the end of the day. And so the Spirit is described as a guarantee of our inheritance. And the Spirit increases our joy, causes us to love God more and to want to follow him in our daily lives. And that's the third movement. And that brings us to Romans chapter 9, or chapters 9 to 11, really. Chapters 9 to 11 are one big chunk. They're like the fourth movement of the book. Um, Really, because they are so coherent together, the ideal thing to do would be for us to stay here till about midnight while I talk through the whole thing. So uh, we'll see how we go, um, but it's unlikely that uh, I'll go for that, to be honest. So... Uh, We're just going to start looking at the beginning of chapter 9, but bear in mind that we're going to be circling around the same themes for the next few weeks and answering the same big questions. So if the answer doesn't seem complete at the end of this evening, that's because we've only seen the first part of it and there's more to come. Okay? So you have to keep coming, so too bad. Uh, Now, these chapters, many people have considered them to be frankly, very, very difficult, uh, which they are. There's no doubt about it. There's stuff in Romans 9 to 11 which is hard to understand and actually even harder to really get our heads and our hearts around, stuff that doesn't seem pleasant on first reading. We're going to have to grapple with that a bit. They are difficult. Uh, People have also thought they're pretty much irrelevant, um, which they are not. Uh, I've uh, been to and uh, actually organised Uh, at least one preaching series uh, which went from Romans 8 straight into Romans 12 uh, because 9 to 11 was considered to be, we don't really need that. 
Um, that's really dangerous, actually. Um, it assumes that uh, 9 to 11 is a kind of interruption to the flow of Paul's argument. So you can read it that way. Let me, let me read it. Uh, so the end of chapter 8. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So you see how tempting it is to skip from one to the other. You talk about God's great love and how complete it is and how unconquerable it is, and then you skip straight on to... Given that God loves us that much and has been that merciful to us, here is our response, offering up our lives as living sacrifices. Um, the, uh, the only slight problem with that is that it assumes that Paul was incompetent, and um, that is probably not a good assumption to make, uh, particularly for those of us who are committed to the idea of the infallibility of Scripture, but frankly also for the rest of us. Um, it's better not to assume that an author is an idiot uh, as you approach their work, because it you know, makes it hard to get to grips with it. So, we'll assume that um, these chapters are meant to be there and that we're meant to read them in order, like you would with any other book. Sorry, I'm talking quite fast. It's because I've got a lot to say. Uh, Wave at me if you're not keeping up, and I may or may not slow down. Right, now, the status of Israel, the Old Testament people of God, looms large in these chapters. In fact, that is what these chapters are all about. What about Israel? And sort of connected to that, what about the whole of the Old Testament? How is that relevant to us? And connected to that, what about Jews and Gentiles coming together as Christians in the church? How is that going to work out? Now that is still a live issue in a lot of places in the world. It may not be such a live issue for us, although you might be surprised. But the stuff about Israel is important, and uh, we'll see why it is important uh, later on. But let me just point out one other thing. When we're reading about Israel, when we're reading about the Old Testament, primarily what we're reading about is God. So what is actually at stake here is not just our interpretation of the status of Israel or our understanding of the relationship between Israel and the church. It's our understanding of God that matters This is the God who has revealed himself in the history of Israel. So it matters that we get it right. Um, It's entirely possible, actually, that Paul wrote the whole letter of Romans because there was trouble between Jew and Gentile Christian in Rome. Uh, The issue actually comes up quite a few times, um, and we kind of tend to skim over it because we assume that... um, Dan's phone is flashing something odd at me, I'm going to ignore it. We assume that uh, this book, like the rest of the Bible, is about our individual salvation and our individual relationship with God. Well, it has a lot to say about that. But actually, there is a lot of stuff here about Jew and Gentile and about Israel. So, for example, if you were to flick back to uh, chapter 1, verse 16, you would find out that, uh, that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Well, why put it like that? Actually, I think if we were writing it, we'd just leave that second bit off. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, full stop. But Paul thinks it's important. 
Uh, he goes on, chapter 3 is actually substantially about proving that both Gentiles and Jews are sinful and stand under God's condemnation. Uh, it picks up a lot on the law and the importance of the law and the fact that Israel's failed to keep the law. Uh, chapter 3, verse 29 is a really clear reference. God is not the God of Jews only, he is the God of Gentiles too. So you see that this relationship between Jews and Gentiles, even in the early chapters of Romans, is important. And if we were to go ahead into chapter 14, we would, and 15 actually, we would find that that is all about how practically do Jews and Gentiles get on in the church, particularly when Jews feel the need to carry on observing the Sabbath or uh, dietary laws from the Old Testament, and Gentile Christians don't feel that need. And we'll get to that, I imagine, in 18 months or so. Uh, so this is, this is a central theme of Romans. So all of Paul's kind of big deliverances about righteousness by faith and about the death of Christ in our place and about the giving of the Spirit, they all sit in the context of dealing with the potential problem of, of Jews and Gentiles in the church and then the corresponding sort of theological problem of how does Israel and the whole Old Testament story fit in with this new thing that God is doing in Jesus? How do, how do we understand that in the here and now? It's interesting for us because actually the question of Israel is a live one in our world. How are we to think about Israel? It's also a, a, a very <laughs> vital question because it's about God, as I've said. It's about his character it's about what he is like. Happy so far. I, I like um, sort of little bits of feedback because it helps me to know whether you've understood anything at all that I'm saying. Um, I'm very happy to uh, go over it again, if not, although that will keep us here for a long time. So here we go. There are two big sections in the passage that we've read. There's 1 to 5 and then there's 6 to 18. So 1 to 5 is about Paul's personal anguish. It's, a, it's kind of a roller coaster. If you come off the end of chapter 8 with its huge, yeah, God's unconquerable love and mercy and grace, and then you head straight down into um, anguish and unceasing sorrow. So it, it, is a, it is a roller coaster. And it shows us that for Paul, this is not just a kind of abstract theological problem. It's not something that he can just go away and think about coldly. For Paul, it really is tragic that his own people, Israel, having received so much, see the list he gives, the adoption to sonship, the divine glory, he's talking about the fact that in Israel, God's presence was physically manifest in the temple, and before that in the tabernacle. Uh, the covenants, the promises to Abraham, the promises to David, uh, the receiving of the law, the Old Testament is full of how, what a massive privilege it is to receive the law. What other nation is there like this, the Psalms say, to receive the law? Um, the temple worship, only in Israel was God worshipped in the way that he had revealed himself. Only in Israel were there acceptable sacrifices for sin. What a huge privilege that is. The promises, they were looking forward, they were expecting a deliverer. They thought that God was going to come and make everything right because he had promised to do so. Immense 
privileges. But the key privilege is this. From them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all. It's interesting, uh, I've noticed this quite often when Paul emphasises the human ancestry of Jesus. He makes a really strong statement next to it about his divinity. And he does the same here. Jesus, man and God, but come from the stock of Israel. What an enormous privilege then to be an Israelite. You are a blood relative of the Messiah, of God become man. And Paul stacks those up to make us think this is immense. A huge privilege to be a member of the people of Israel. But Paul's anguish springs from the fact that despite all of those privileges, Israel as a whole has rejected its own Messiah. Not every Jew has rejected the Messiah, and we'll see that later on as we go into chapters 10 and 11. But as a whole, Israel has not embraced the fulfilment of the promises which they had lived by. And for Paul, that is tragic. After all of that build-up, they have missed it. The great event, the thing, the person that Israel lived for, and they missed it. And they did worse than miss it. They outright rejected him. And so Paul says what must be one of the strongest and most difficult statements actually in the New Testament. I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Think about what a a massive thing that is to say. Paul is saying, I almost wish that I could embrace damnation if it would help my people Israel to come to salvation, to see their Messiah for who he is. He's probably got in his mind the example of Moses. When uh, Moses is up Mount Sinai and uh, the people are down below, Moses is talking with God in the cloud, and uh, the people are down below, and it's about six weeks since they heard God's voice coming from the top of the mountain. And six weeks later they decide, it doesn't look like Moses is coming down. Uh, Let's make an idol. Let's make a golden calf. Six weeks. That's the turnaround from hearing the voice of the living God to let's make an idol. And Moses says to God, God, God says to Moses, I will wipe these people out. I will wipe these people out and I'll make a great nation of you instead. And Moses says, no, I would rather be cut out of your book of life than see these people perish. And so Paul, like Moses, is saying, I feel so strongly for these people. I would rather take it on myself than to see them cut off from Jesus, separated from their Messiah. Now, obviously, it's a hypothetical because Paul knows that that's not going to happen. That's not the way it would work. But it's still a pretty strong hypothetical. It shows how much he loves these people. As an aside, um, it's something of a rebuke to us, I think, that actually, is there anybody that we love anything like this much? 
Paul's love embraces his whole nation. Um, I wonder whether ours extends much beyond our immediate families and friends. But that's not the main point. So I put that out there to show you that this is a real problem for Paul. His personal problem is that he is full of anguish about the status of Israel. But his theological problem comes out in verse 6, and it's kind of implicit. Verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed. So you see, the theological problem that lies behind this is, did God fail to keep his promises? The Old Testament is full of promises to Israel. Has God failed to keep them? Has God's word somehow become weak and not achieved what he said it was going to achieve? Well, uh, the answer is going to span chapters 9 to 11. But in, in the section that we've read, there are basically two parts to the answer. There is God's free mercy and God's faithfulness to his promise. God's free mercy and God's faithfulness to his promise. And Paul makes these points by rereading the history of the Old Testament carefully and seeing what it actually says. So, let me start the opposite order to what I just said, because obviously that's logical. Uh, God is faithful, says Paul, to his promise. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Now, if you don't know the story, this is going to seem very obscure, but let me recap it very briefly. Abraham is promised that he will be the father of many nations. He has no kids. He's getting old. This is a problem. But God has promised that he'll be the father of many nations and that through his offspring the salvation of the world will come. Okay? Abraham gets a bit worried about it. His wife gets a bit more worried about it. And his wife suggests to him that maybe it would be a good idea if he you know, had a fling with the slave girl and uh, they could have a son that way. And uh, that happens. Uh, Abraham doesn't seem to protest. And uh, they have a son called Ishmael. And then God comes back to Abraham and says, I'm going to keep my promise. You and Sarah, your wife, are going to have a son. And Abraham says, just let Ishmael be the guy. Let it be Ishmael. After all, he's already here. God says, no. No, it's going to happen through the miraculous son that I give you when you're not expecting it. He doesn't actually say that, but that's a paraphrase. And so Paul sees that as a paradigm of the way God has always dealt with Israel. He says, actually, it was never the case that all of Israel was Israel. Does that make sense? Maybe I do little scare quotes to make it clearer. It was never the case that all of Israel was Israel. Actually, if you look at Isaac and Ishmael, you can see that right from the beginning of the foundation of the nation, right from Abraham, the promises applied down a particular line and did not apply to all of Abraham's descendants willy-nilly. And that was important. It's important because it means that God could keep his promises to Israel and it did not mean that the whole nation had to be embraced in that salvation. 
Actually, God never promised that. Uh, it's significant, incidentally, that Isaac's birth is the result of God's promise being believed, whereas Ishmael's birth is a result of human beings trying to short-circuit the whole process and get things moving because God is taking too long. Promise is important for Paul here. God's promise never extended to all Abraham's offspring. And implicitly, actually, the same difference exists in our next example with um, Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob and Esau, whilst they're still in the womb, God promises that the older will serve the younger. Only one is the heir to the promise. A promise that God has kept, Paul is saying. And actually, most fundamentally, God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Most fundamentally, God has been true to his character as he has revealed it. God has been true to himself. God hasn't been unfaithful. The word of God hasn't failed. The promises haven't been broken. They've been kept. And through it all, God has been God. This is pretty important to us. Remember Romans 8 and uh, all of that joy. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's only of any value to us if we have a God who keeps his promises. If God is unfaithful to his promises, then he can say that anybody who trusts in Christ will be saved, but we have no no idea whether that will actually happen in the end. God keeps his word. And as Paul looks back over the history of the Old Testament, he says, God has always kept his word. Throughout, he has been himself been true to the way he revealed himself to Moses as the one who will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And every time he has made a promise, whether it was to Abraham that he would have a son, or to um, Isaac that the younger would serve, uh, the older would serve the younger, all the way through, God has kept every single promise. So that's the first bit of Paul's defence. Second bit, God's free mercy. Are you with me, by the way? Vaguely yeah, happy? Yeah, okay. God's free mercy. Why Isaac and not Ishmael? Why Jacob and not Esau? Well, Paul says, throughout Israel's history, God has shown himself to be free in showing mercy. Absolutely free. God is true to himself. And the character that he has revealed is that he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And as we look through the history of Israel, we see that that is exactly what has happened. He has shown mercy freely. Paul draws that out in the strongest way with Rebecca's kids. They were conceived at the same time by their father Isaac. But before they had been born or done anything good or bad in order that God's promise in election might stand... Not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
Now the strong language there is just underlining the fact that God's mercy to Jacob was not based on anything that he had done. was not based on what he deserved. It was free. Actually, when you um, read the story of Jacob, you realise that, frankly, it had to be that way, otherwise he wouldn't have got anything because he was an unpleasant character all through. It was free mercy. Nobody has a claim on God. Nobody is able to say to God, you owe me this. You owe me salvation. Nobody has a claim on the basis of what they have done because, after all, Jacob and Esau hadn't done anything at all when God made his promise. Nobody has a claim on the basis of who they are descended from. It's not because, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. So Paul is saying, you do not have a claim on God's mercy because you are good. And you do not have a claim on God's mercy just because you are a Jew, which some people may well have thought. God's mercy is free. This really matters to us. Um, God is not bound up with his own sort of strictness and severity. I am... I would contrast this, for example, with the the God of Islam, who is not able, really, to be truly merciful. He's described as merciful, but it's not the mercy that you see in, in the God of the Bible. He's caught up in himself. The God of the Bible is free to have mercy. And that matters to me. It matters to me because only a God who showed free mercy could or would show mercy to somebody like me. If what Romans 1 to 3 has said about me is true, then it has to be free mercy. Because there's nothing I could do to deserve it. Nothing I have done to deserve it. There's a shadow side to this bright mercy, uh, which is exemplified by the Pharaoh of the Exodus, who pops up just at the end of the bit that I read. And we're going to talk a bit more about Pharaoh um, next week. So if you're thinking this throws up some huge problems actually uh, come next week and we'll um, talk about those huge problems and they won't go away but uh, it'll be interesting anyway. Let me wrap it up. This is a preliminary conclusion because we've only just started reading Paul's defence. Paul says God has not broken his promises to Israel. If it was the case that he had actually made a promise that all Israelites, just by virtue of being Israelites, would be saved, then he would have broken that promise. But Paul says he never made that promise. And he has been faithful to all of the promises that he has made. And God is free to show mercy where he wills. And that is great news, because it means he is free to show mercy to us no matter what we have done and no matter what we are like. He is true to himself and his nature is to have mercy on whom he will have mercy.